Good morning. Good morning. Uh, we I want to share with you, you know, some really cool things are happening. Take a look at the side screens. Um, when the pandemic hit, it exacerbated what was already happening in American culture with regard to students and the gospel and ministry. Uh, we don't know very many student ministries that will say, yeah, we're just hitting on all eight cylinders. It's really a struggle in America, so it was good timing for us to be doing something, launching a different way to engage with students, and that's why uh, one of the reasons why Players Box exists. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's where we say, hey, you, you can bring play to pressure as students, as parents, as families, and you can see some of the stuff, I think it's on the side screen, some of the stuff that's going on. We were at Valley View High School all day a few weeks ago. Uh, we'll be at Springboro tonight. We've been with, working with one of their teams. We'll be there Wednesday. And uh, we want you to know that because the, the interesting thing about our, our Players Box team is none of us were going, you know what, we're kind of bored in life. Let's look for something really hard to do. And... Uh, but I think the thing about our team is, is uh, I think all of us feel like, you know what, we are, instead of standing around going, somebody ought to do something about this, we're going, let's do something about this. <laughs> let's do something about this. Let's engage with kids where they are with pressure. That's in the mantra of the woman at the well. That's our well. Our well is, is the inordinate pressure that kids are feeling. And I just, I want to, you know, as you saw those pictures, I want to thank you. Because without your generosity, this could not happen. And I don't know where God's going to take Players Box. Uh, it has potential to do some extraordinary things in not only helping equip students, but being a way of engagement that, that, that leads them to Christ eventually. And uh, I want to say, Southbrook, for all of you who are, who are so generous, not just to the building program, but to our weekly contribution, thank you. Because uh, the thing that struck me about Players Box is just amazing is how many of you, you do not even have kids. You, you, don't, have, you don't have a personal benefit that's going to come from this. But how many of you have told me, but somebody's got to do something for kids. Somebody, somebody's got to do something. And that's why we believe if we lose this generation, um, we're in trouble. And uh, thank you, Southbrook. Thank you for for your generosity, which is able to make this happen. And uh, we appreciate it deeply. A young man goes into a candy store and he says, I need three boxes of candy. One large, one medium, one small. And the owner of the candy store says, well, why do you need three boxes? He said, well, I'm going out on a date tonight for the first time with this girl. And if it's, a, if it's an okay date, I'm going to give her a small box. If it's a medium date, like we end up holding hands, I'm going to give her a you know, medium-sized box. But if it's a great date, we, we end up kissing, I'm going, to, I'm going to give her a large box. And he goes to the girl's house, and they're having dinner with her family, and he's asked to give the blessing. And he bows his head, and he prays. And he prays, and he prays, and he prays. I mean, it rivaled Jesus' prayers. And after dinner... She, he and the girl are going for a walk. And she goes, you know, that prayer was amazing. I didn't know you were so spiritually deep. He said, I didn't know your dad was the owner of the candy store. <laughs> the, the, the message that we're going to talk about today 
I love this because it's why our church has a mission to connect people to Christ, not religion. Is because the more you sit in those chairs, the more dangerous it is for you. Because the more religious you get, the more you need what we're going to talk about today. Because there are people like that young man who look so spiritually sophisticated and impressive. But all I want you to leave with today, and for those of you who stay and take the Lord's Supper, is just to remember that this is the sermon in a sentence. Good people need the gospel. Good people need the gospel. And that's the point Paul is making, beginning in Romans chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 to 11, but we've got to go backwards today. At the end of chapter 1, look at what he says. He says, Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, not, they not only continue to do those very things, but also approve of those who practice them. If you weren't with us last week, Paul's thinking about the people, the Gentile, non-religious culture that promotes idolatry and encourages people to engage in idolatry. And he begins to say, it is so easy to see this in other people and not in ourselves. That's his point with this section. And he is laying his argument that we need a righteousness from outside ourselves that gives us an assessment, an MRI diagnosis that is accurate. Because if not, we we will miss our own idols. And for those of us who are more religious, today is for you. We need a gospel who tells us we really, who we really are without any shading or coloring. Remember last week I ended with this statement, can you see the downward spiral of denial, disconnection, darkness, depravity, destruction, but that we are all in Romans 1. That he's laying the argument that the gospel tells us all of us are more sinful than we could ever imagine. And all of us, the good news is, that's why it's called the gospel, means good news, are more loved than we could ever hope. And when we understand this, one word will start being dismissed from our vocabulary. They. That's the word that'll start being dismissed. Those Democrats, those Republicans, those liberals, those conservatives, they will start being dismissed because when we understand our own sinfulness, we will stop shaking our heads and rolling our eyes self-righteously at what they are like. Now again, in chapter 1, Paul's talked about the Greco-Roman Gentiles, godless and wicked, he says. And he knows that a religious, self-righteous Jewish person who is in the Roman church will hear those words and say, way to preach it, Paul. Way to bring it. These ignorant, biblically illiterate, relativistic Liberal pagans are deserving of God's wrath. I'm glad you're sticking it to him. And the point of this section is he's setting up the religious people. It's to draw out the number one susceptibility of religious persons, self-righteous pride, a feeling of satisfaction that says they're wicked and godless and I thank God that I am not like one of them. And Paul turns to us next, we who call ourselves religious, because self-righteousness is our specialty. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. You, therefore, have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, 
Now remember, passing judgment is not analysis. It's they deserve God's judgment, but I don't. You who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now this is brilliant because he is saying no one truly lives up to their own standards. In chapter 1, he, he says, I'm ex I've exposed the idols of the irreligious person. But in chapter 2, he's going to expose the more tricky, more subtle, more insidious idol, that's right, of the religious person. And that is self-righteousness. Most of Paul's list in Romans 1, 29 and 30 reflects our attitudes, not our actions. It reflects our hearts, not our hands. And it's actually one of the evidences that he is, is, is saying what Jesus told him to say. People say, how, do we, how can we trust Paul? And you see all these evidences in the biblical text of how often he is just following Jesus' pattern. And here's one. For example, about everything he's talking about is about the, the condition of your soul, not necessarily what you do, etc. Because to Jesus, that mattered more. What, what's the condition of your soul? Out of the overflow of your heart, the mouth will speak and you'll do what you do. For example, in Matthew 5, verse 21, you've heard it said long ago, people long ago, you shall not murder. Anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. We all agree on that. Murder's off limits, right? Everybody agree with that? Okay. You know, you know I always say, if the Bible, you know, the Bible says not to hate, but if that ever changes, I got my people picked out. You, you have that? <laughs> but I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister to the, will be subject to judgment. So here's the digression. You're angry, and there's a sense in which held on anger kills and anyone who then goes to the level of saying to brother or sister, racha, it actually is onomatopoetic. It's like a hawker. You know, it, it's like you're, it's your, you're devaluing. It's, it's, it literally meant empty-headed. You numbskull. You, 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 you ignorant idiot. But then he goes, I mean, they're answerable to the court. But anyone who says you fool, which that was a step down even lower, you're worthy of nothing. You're worthy of the, you are scum. Will be in danger of the fire of hell. Now, that's brilliant, because this is exactly what he, Paul's saying in Romans 2. Most of us, we can easily get to the end of our day and say, well, I didn't murder anybody today. I'm pretty good. And it's more rarely said, I've not treated anyone as if they were not worthy of being loved today. I've not devalued anyone today. That was a good day. That was a good day. Because it gets more to the soul, not necessarily literally committing murder. So Paul says, when you see someone acting out of anger, let's say, murdering, for example, devaluing people, for example, what do you do? Do you have the thought, that person is lost, I'm so glad I'm not like one of them? Or do you say, but for the grace of God, there go I. But for the grace of God, there go I. Uh, there's a an old story about a traffic school. People who were sent to traffic school because of violations that they had supposedly committed. I say supposedly because that traffic school was like Shawshank Redemption. Everyone in here is innocent. And they all had justifications for speeding, for, for committing that U-turn. Our law enforcement officials, have you ever heard this? Raise your hand. Have you ever heard justifications? Yeah. I pulled out my, my, my business card one time to a sheriff, a local sheriff, you know, my, my business card. It says pastor on it. You know, that was my, I'm, I'm going to ministry right now. And when it got to this one guy, he said this. He goes, I didn't stop at a stop sign. That's why I'm here. I was entirely wrong and I got caught. 
And there was silence just like that. And then everybody in the room broke out in applause for the one honest guy in traffic school. Just broke out in applause that there was someone honest. And one of the things about religion that is, and many of you know this, I don't like religion. It's always been a problem for me to be a pastor, and I don't like religion. I don't, I don't like religious stuff. I don't like, as you can tell, I don't like just, you know, do stuff to do stuff. And, and we don't know why we're doing stuff, but we just do this religious stuff. I just don't like it. And the idea here that I love about this message, this message today is, is I love preaching it. It's the hardest one for me because I need it most. <laughs> I need this one more. And that is the, the church, the place of the gospel ought to be a place where we go, man, nobody's perfect. And we cheer one another on when we're secure enough to say, well, I've broken the law. I don't look at it as, Go, it's not sin anymore. That's liberalism. I don't look at it as go and don't sin again. We have nine sins underneath that sin that you better hadn't committed either. It's I go and I believe with his grace I can be righteous because what he's given me. Now, you know, what's interesting about this is when it comes to judgment, nobody likes to be judged. God's going to judge us someday. That is undeniable. And it will be done slowly, thoroughly, and mercifully. From God's point of view, people look different than they frequently do to you and me. This is really important to understand. God does not divide the human race into two categories. Because I think sometimes we have this framework in our mind that God looks down on this planet and says, there are those psychologically sound religious people who pay their bills and vote Republican. I like them. I like hanging out with them. And then there are those irregular ones over there, those fringe liberal lunatics who are the Romans one people. I don't like them. God doesn't do that. As we get to the end of this section, it says God doesn't show favoritism. What he sees, remember, remember you go into any department store, they're the irregular rack, and you got to buy as is. Everybody's in that pile. That's how God sees all of us. We're all on the irregular pile. God says, you know what? Everybody needs grace and mercy. And he has this restless longing that nobody should stay in the discarded irregular pile and why he wants all of us to understand that we do deserve to be there if he leaves us alone. And this is hard to grasp. It is so easy to pass judgment on other people, which means, you know, grading they're more worthy than I am. And the point of this is, I'm not kidding you, is that we are all worthy of pass, not passing God's judgment. We're all, I, years ago, years ago, I remember when USA Today, uh, no, when USA Today, US News and World Report did a study and they asked this question. They asked this question, who do you think is most likely to get into heaven? And there are a bunch of famous people listed, this person 19%, this person 61% said yes. Second or highest on the list was Mother Teresa. 79% of respondents believed that she would get into heaven. Now, 21% of people have a high standard, don't you think? Whew! But one person topped Mother Teresa. One individual got 87% shot at getting past the pearly gates. You want to guess who it was? You probably guess who it was. The person completing the survey. 
Out of all the famous people in the world, I'd put Mother Teresa at the top, but if there's anyone who has a better shot than Mother Teresa, it's me. All right? That's, I mean, we don't say that. But we have what's called in psychology, it's called a self-bias. You know what they do? That's terrible. But when I do, it's not so bad. And the point is, is if God even, if he judges us thoroughly, slowly, completely, we're not going to pass. It's even possible in America today because this is a judgmental culture. It's harsh. We, I mean, talk radio trains you to be judgmental. Social media trains you to be judgmental. You don't just make assessments. You make judgments on people's character and their destiny eternally sometimes. And it's so possible to do this. It's so easy to do this that we pass someone for an attitude that we know we share. The same kind of attitude. We tend to be far quicker. We tend to be harsher in our criticism of others than we are of ourselves. And we'll find all kinds of excuses. Oh, I was tired. I was tired when I did that. I was provoked. Or it wasn't that bad. They just overreacted. John Stott, the theologian, said, we work ourselves up into a state of self-righteous indignation over the disgraceful behavior of other people, and they're usually on the other side of the political realm, while the very same behavior seems not so serious when it is ours rather than theirs. We judge because it, it kind of makes us feel superior. I know you're too sophisticated for this. Anybody ever heard of the television show The Simpsons? You probably never watched that because it's too sophisticated for this audience. You ever heard of that show? I saw where it's renewed through 2025. Amazing. But one of the characters that, I don't know if he's been on it for a while, but was a guy named Ned Flanders. Ned Flanders was an evangelical Christian neighbor of Homer and Marge Simpson. And there was an episode where he says one time that he and his wife had just been away to Christian camp where they were being trained on how to be more judgmental. And his wife says, there's this line where she says, I don't judge Homer and Marge. That's for a vengeful God to do. And there is such a, an element of truth to that, isn't it? No wonder we Christians are the most judgmental part of society, at least in perception. Because judging allows us to not have to face our own sin. We can feel good about ourselves while indulging what makes us feel good. And Paul says to we religious people, you are condemning yourself. Look at verse 1. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such thing is based on truth. God is scrupulously fair in his judgment. I know people who will not come to faith because they feel like they'll be judging their father who died without ever trusting Christ to eternal damnation. Understand, no one's going to be treated unfairly by God. No one is. No one is. Don't let that keep you out. God is fair, but Jesus said this. He said, if I've been harsh in my judgment, I'm going to be judged on that basis. He says in these famous words, do not judge, do not condemn others, or you too will be judged, for in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That's the scariest verse you'll read this week. Because... We've trained in our world. Can you believe how stupid they were? I would never do that. I can't believe that coach did that. He's so stupid. And he says, when you come to judge me, I hope that the measure used is the measure I've been given. And the measure I've been given is grace and mercy. Not compromising truth, but gracious and merciful. Think about a thimble and a five-gallon bucket. 
I hope, I don't know about you, we all, because we, one of the things we talk about with students so much is self-judgment. How many of you like to be judged? We'll ask them. Nobody likes to be judged. We do it to ourselves. And I don't know about you, but when it comes to you judging me, I want to be judged with a, not a thimble of mercy, but I want to be judged with a five-gallon bucket of mercy. How many of you would say, I agree with that? I agree that when somebody assesses my life, I want to be judged in a five-gallon bucket of mercy. Most of, mo most of us would. You judge me, and some of you really evidently want to do that after last week. <clears throat> I want you to remember that I am an Irish Native American mixture. That I, I was doomed from the start. That is a messed up genetic system. I'm naturally introverted. I don't need people in my life very much. I need three people. And we have five people in our family. So just in our family alone, I'm over. I'm over. I carry deep scars. I'm not an intellectual. My mom did way too many things for me growing up. How many of you can say that? Like, I hope you'll judge me on that. My dog died when I was only 32 years old. I hope you'll judge me on that basis. I could go on and on. I want a bucket full of mercy. But the question is, Jesus said, do I give mercy by the bucket? And I don't. I often forget. They have stories. They have wounds. They have scars. They have genes. They have parents. They have hurts. And I make judgments of people, and I, and I forget that. And I, this, this message today has just been, this week, it's like, man, the Lord, is, he's had one word for me all week. Charlie, you need to repent of some stuff. Do I give mercy by the thimble or do I give it by the bucket? With the measure you use, it'll be measured to you. And trust me, this is so common. The idea of judging is so common that you're possibly thinking right now about somebody you wish were here listening to this message because they need this teaching so much. And the good news is they are here. The bad news is they're you. <laughs> this is what Frankie, uh, Francis Schaefer called the invisible tape recorder. Now, he was a 20th century pastor, so we'll call it the invisible voice recorder in your digital device. And he said, it is as though there's an invisible recorder in each of our pockets. It records the things we say to others and about others, about how they ought to live. Then at the last day, God the judge will take the recorder out of your pocket, and he'll say, I'm going to be completely fair. I will simply play this recording and judge you on the basis of what your own words say are the standards of human behavior. So when you, verse 3, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet you do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Do you think you're not in need of mercy and grace? And the point that he is going to make is no one can realistically say, yeah, I think I'm pretty good. I think, I think I'll be okay. That's the American way. We're not, we may be this, but we're not that. Self-righteous religion is just as much a rejection of Christ and a misunderstanding of his character as the self-centered irreligion of Romans 1. Let that sink in. Who was Jesus hard on? Pagans who didn't know God or religious people? He only got angry with religious people. 
And Paul says, yes, an atheist suppresses the truth about the existence and the nature of God and uses God's gifts to indulge their own desires without giving glory to God or thanks to the creator. That's right. There's a presumptuous contempt for his kindness. A self-righteous person, he's saying here, doesn't do that. A self-righteous person will acknowledge the existence of God but sees no real need for him. Listen to this, listen to this. I can tell you if you're a Christian or not. Do you treat God as a boss or as a father? A boss you'd never ask anything of because you haven't earned the right to ask for a raise. And when you feel like you've earned the right to ask for a raise, then you'll ask for a raise. But a father who has adopted you and paid the adoption price, who wants to bless you and wants to be in a relationship with you, and you know that you were an orphan on the streets until he grabbed you off the streets of sin and brought you into his home, that father who wants you to desperately be in community with him, and if you're not longing for him, if you are not desperate for his righteousness, then you have self-righteousness. If you are not desperate for the presence of God in your life, you have a self-righteousness about you that you did not know, that you, you were not aware of. You really don't need him that bad. I had a Christian for a long time tell me this summer, he said, you know, I, the, thing, the thing about Southbrook that bothers me is you guys seem to, to, to spend so much time on those people who are really lost. And I knew this sermon was coming up. He got a preview of coming attractions right there. Uh, because how do we miss this? Now look at verse 4. Do you... Do you show contempt for how God has kindly reached out to you? The riches of his kindness, his forbearance to you, his patience with you, not realizing that God's kindness was intended to lead you to repentance. If God treated you as our sin deserves, oh my gosh. But he has treated us kindly. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, those two words... In the, in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint are always used, uh, Deuteronomy 9.27, always in relation to idolatry, to idol worship. But he's saying to you religious people who have stubbornness, repentance, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath. When his righteous judgment will be revealed, God will repay each person according to what they've done. Oh, you go, wait a minute. It looks like he's saying it's all about what you do, your works. No, he's quoting Psalm 62. And in Psalm 62, the people had said one thing about God, but they had done a totally different thing. They had, they had basically lied to God. They said, we're going to do this, and they didn't. And, he, and, he's, and he's using Psalm 62 here to say, but there are those who in Psalm 62 say, oh, oh, Lord, you are my rock and my salvation. You are my fortress. I'll never be shaken. Salvation comes from you alone. Look what he does. Look what he does. Look at how. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he'll give eternal life. So you have given your heart and soul to Christ. His righteousness has come into your life, and now it shows itself. For those who are self-seeking, who reject the truth, follow evil, there'll be wrath and anger. There'll be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil. First for the Jew, they knew first, they had the, the word of God. Then for the Gentile, but glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. First for the Jew, then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. And you look at that first question, say, is he talking about we earn our way? He's not. He's still saying, as a matter of fact, somebody said this. Somebody said, the apples on an apple tree prove life. They don't provide life. If you have a transformative faith, a genuine faith, it does not provide eternal life, but it does prove. 
that something has happened in you, especially if you used to be a, a, a grumpy old codger, you know, if you used to be a judgmental and all of a sudden people start seeing a graciousness in you, they start seeing you doing good to people that you used to be racially opposed to, you used to be categorically opposed to, and they see a change in your heart, they start seeing fruit from your tree. They say, boy, something happened. Well, God knows that. God notices that. You know what's interesting about Romans 1 and 2? I had never seen this until this week. Romans 1 and 2 are telling the story of the prodigal son. Anybody ever heard that story? Most famous story Jesus ever told. In Romans 1, he describes the prodigal son. Give me my share of the estate. Goes out, spends it on, on a prostitutes, spends it on wild living, licentious living, just, man, I am going to sow my wild oats. And then in chapter 2, he addresses the older brother who stayed home. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law are the target of Jesus' most famous story because like the older brother, they don't understand how they're in need of God's mercy and grace the older brother doesn't go looking for the younger brother when he leaves home. Even worse, the older brother even resents the celebration of the younger brother when he does come home. Grace and mercy offend his sense of justice. You ever heard someone say this? God helps those who help themselves. That's a statement of self-righteousness. Guess what? You needed help before you ever asked for it. God helps those who can't help themselves and say, I can't help myself, God. I'm not good enough. I'm sinful, I'm broken. The prodigal story isn't telling us that the older brother is as lost as the younger brother. The prodigal story is telling us that the older brother is more lost than the younger brother. That's what it's telling. The story is told for the benefit of the religious people who are judging Jesus for hanging out with tax collectors and sinners, all those people who categorically are in the irregular pile. And here's the older brother who's obedient. He goes to church every Sunday with his dad. He has his Bible marked. He's compliant with everything the father says. And Jesus said, he's, he's more lost than the younger son who said, Father, I have sinned. Make me like one of your slaves. That's what I deserve. Jesus says the self-righteous religion is the older brother. And today, all I want you, Southbrook, to walk away from is Jesus and Paul, his agent of truth, saying, you people are trying so hard to be good. You don't know it. You're treating God like a boss who owes you a paycheck. And you're lost, too. Because you don't realize God's not impressed with your goodness. I remember the first time I played golf with a PGA Tour professional. And at that time, I was a pretty good golfer. He wasn't impressed with how I played. Did you ever play golf with a PGA Tour golfer? God's not impressed with our goodness. And even though religious observation, religious adherence in and of itself looks godly, it can so quickly become a form of idolatry because the religious begin to find their self-worth and their morality. 
They find their savior in their rule keeping. This is why Jesus was a stumbling block to the Jews. Why some of you right now are going, this does not compute with how I was raised. God blesses people who are good. God, God is about paying us for our goodness. You earn it. It's the American way. And this is why he was a stumbling block to the Jews. This is why the prodigal story is the story of stories. Good people need the gospel. And Jesus is the older brother we all need. That's the point. And all I want us to do today, what I have prayed for this week, last week was tough. For all of us. I think it's brilliant that Paul follows that with this. When Peter knew he was in the presence of a person that he couldn't, he, he, he couldn't control. This, this person who could control fish getting into a net and storms quieting down. What was his, what was his reaction? He didn't say, I've been looking for you all my life. You and I, <laughs> what did he say? Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. I'm in the presence of holiness. And I fall on my knees. And I'm not like the Pharisee who went away from the temple and said, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like one of these. He, I'm the tax collector that said, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Because when that really happens in you, they will stop happening in your mouth. When this, when this Russell Brand, I saw Russell Brand recently, he, he came, became a follower of Christ a while back, and he said, we so desperately in America, we don't need more people to believe in God. We need more people who say they are Christ to live like Christ. And it's so true when it comes to judgment that we have a grace and a truth about us. We don't say go, it's not sin anymore. And we don't say go in shame and guilt. There's no hope for you. We say like Jesus said to the woman, go, I, I believe you can be righteous. You're with me now. And he gave her that gift. I so desperately want us to be a place that is known to be full of grace and truth, but not judgmental. And I think maybe the reason the Lord impressed the, the arduous word repentance on me this week is because I needed this. I needed this. I can be so judgmental. I hate to admit that. But join me. Join me in saying, Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Change me. Fill me with your love. I cry holy. Father, you hear us. We know that you always hear us. What the world is looking for is what you provide in the gospel, 
Not a compromise of sin. Oh, that used to be sin, but that's not sin anymore. No, no, no. An assessment that's accurate. But a spirit that is a new creation, full of grace, full of mercy. Not especially criticizing people different from us and judging their character. This is such a harsh culture we live in. It is. It is graceless. And like the scriptures say, the world is waiting for the sons and daughters of God to be revealed. The world is waiting for us to have a combination of grace and truth that is different. Love without truth is dogmatism. Truth without love is dogmatism. Love without truth is sentimentality. Speaking the truth in love is Jesus. We come to your table of grace now. We come to the table acknowledging maybe I haven't been hungry for you and thirsty for you. And in, in that is revealed a self-righteousness that is satisfied. But as a deer pants for streams of water, may we hunger and thirst. And may we shameless in asking our Heavenly Father for your great gifts, most of all your Holy Spirit. May we just say, Father, I can't, I, I can't live without your presence in my life today. And when that's the case, we're in a good place. Thank you, Jesus. It's in your character, for your glory, that we pray. And all of Southbrook said, Amen. Amen. We'll see you next week.